Hi there, this is Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. The NX is back for a new season after an extended break. We're so happy to present a series of episodes we've recorded with sociologists from across the United States on a wide variety of topics. Looking forward to having you along with us this fall and winter. Today we have two guests, Shai Dromi and Sam Stabler. Dromi and Stabler are the authors of Moral Minefields, How Sociologists Debate Good Science, published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press. Dromi is an associate senior lecturer in sociology at Harvard University and author of Above the Fray, The Red Cross and the Construction of the Humanitarian Relief Sector, also published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. Dromi is also co-editor of the Handbook of the Sociology of Morality, Volume 2. Stabler is a doctoral lecturer in sociology at Hunter College of the City University of New York, and Sam is published in the Sociology of Morality, Religion, and Theory. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Shai and Sam, welcome to the Annex. So good to have you. Thanks for hey, having Dan. us, Dan. All right. Well, we have uh, two S names and me, and so we're going to try to make sure our listeners uh, know who is talking at any particular time. Um, so we'll we'll just get started and jump right in. Let's start with the title of your book, Moral Minefields. This is quite a metaphor, um, you know, a striking metaphor. How would you say this metaphor differs from others that try to capture important aspects of research fields. And how does that metaphor work in your book? So yeah, maybe maybe I'll start. Yeah, so I'm Sam, S1. <laughs> we should get like thing one, thing two shirts. Uh, so the phrase comes from actually two of the different debates that we cover in the book. So uh, Troy Dish Duster uses it as he relates it to uh, the debates about sociological research that uses genetics and then ellie lee and so we and we cover that in the book in the book we cover the debates about race and the new science of genetics and inequality in sociology and what that looks like uh and then the other uh the other scholar who uses it is ellie lee ellie lee uh uses it as a way of describing how mothers relate to the public discourse around breastfeeding your children right and so uh, Lee kind of says the choice, the choice to or not to breastfeed feels for many mothers to be a moral minefield and and Duster says race and genetics that's a moral minefield and this started to stick the project was originally called good on paper, but it didn't have the same oomph and. Uh, and I think part of the reason minefield you know so morality is kind of clear but the minefield part is really the kind of provocative part right the books about morality and how morality fits in social science. And, and that's something we'll probably talk about more, but the minefield part's important. And really like the, the, the main other metaphor that I think about a lot when I think about sociology, uh, I mean, there's lots, but the one that sticks with me is, you know, Pierre Bourdieu used to say, sociology is a martial art. Uh, and, you know, the point of, so uh, of the title minefield is to say yes it is associate it is a kind of martial art it is a it can at times be explosive and violent and intense and and it can require arguing about what reality is and who we think we are in relationship to it at the same time you know the book was written when china were in grad school and, and a lot of it is about okay well i'm not i, I how do I navigate in a field like that? How do I survive and move through a field where many of the practitioners feel like it's their job to morally criticize me, to 
think about the moral dimensions of my research and how do I navigate that without having to fight them all the time, right? I mean, for Pierre Bourdieu, this martial art metaphor, I mean, I think it's nice, but in the end, it makes us all a little bit enemies of one another. And so the minefield, I liked a little bit better because you can kind of navigate through a minefield and get through a minefield, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that that was it for me. Yeah, Shai, did you add something? No, I mean, I think uh, like our shared sense of um, um, needing to needing to, in a sense, circumvent kind of areas that are very rife with uh, disagreement um, or areas where that where we don't exactly work, but we also um, you know we touch closely enough that we you know that there. We might face uh, uh, objections that, in a sense, we we um, didn't feel at the time that were particularly about our work. I think those are the main um, kind of that that's the main background for this this specific metaphor. I mean, one thing that strikes me about mines, you know, in the context of war, right, is that they're typically hidden, right? So you you may know that there are mines in a particular field, but you may not know exactly where they are in that field you know are they evenly distributed are they clustered in some places and not others you know of course stepping on one can often have serious and even fatal consequences and so um i do think there's at least in my recollection there's of graduate school there is the sense that there's so much that maybe i don't know and also the connections between the people who maybe i'm reading or studying even in my own area, aren't particularly clear to me. So especially, be... yeah, go ahead. Especially as a newcomer, right? When you're in grad school, as you said, Dan, you don't know yet what the, you know, who's connected to who and what's the relationship between, you know, this group of people working on, uh, on topic A and uh, this other group that works on on my topic, right? And then, um, you know, there are so many, the, the sense I think uh, initially is that there are so many missteps you could take without, as you said, without knowing exactly uh, the lay of the land and where where the, the sensitive parts are. I was talking with a socio-genomics person recently and they were, and they were telling me, you know, I was just, I was like, you know, how did you get involved in this? You know, they're, oh, I was just interested in health and science and social life. And, you know, it wasn't until my third or fourth year that I gave a talk and somebody kind of said, excuse me, why isn't this eugenics and how will this not lead to the next Holocaust? <laughs> and he was like, and this researcher was like, oh my God, and went to his advisors and his advisors like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to learn how to like live with that if you're going to keep doing this. And I think especially as a grad student, we come in having no idea how how the rest of the community will react to our interests and our concerns. And yeah, you you know, a field like that, you you step in and suddenly you realize there's not one mine, there's hundreds of them. They're everywhere, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, that gives, I think, our listeners a good sense of kind of the overall not to overuse a metaphor field that that you're that you're working in with this book and and more specifically the book is about how sociologists determine whether or not a piece of scholarship or a research program is morally good or not 
So you identify several styles of justifications, what you call moral repertoires, that sociologists use to argue for the moral worth of their work. So I imagine some listeners are skeptical of any role for morality within sociology. So how do you define morality and what do you argue is its role in sociological research? Yeah, um, I think, so I think um, you're very right that many readers, listeners would raise an eyebrow if we say morality and sociology. And I think the reason for that is oftentimes when we say morality, we think philosophy, okay? We think about the humanities and uh, Kant and, uh, you, you know, so, uh, and something that's far removed from what, you know, we as sociologists uh, normally do. Uh, but our definition of morality, which I think is actually close, a common definition of mor mor morality today in um, sociology is uh, of the practical um, ways in which individuals evaluate whether something is good or bad, whether it uh, is worthy or unworthy, uh, whether it's positive or negative. Um, you know, even if they've never read moral philosophy, right? Because we all do that every day in, you know, countless uh, settings, right? Uh, you know, is uh, is a proposal to, I don't know, uh, tear down this uh, building and build, build a parking lot instead. Uh, is that good or bad for the community? Um, is this, um, um, you know, is this new hire for that community, is that the right is that the right choice, or uh, was there someone uh, who was more appropriate, and so on? Um, so, in a sense, like our our view of morality is is of um, a lived um, element of uh, you know of, of our daily da daily life. Uh, right, it's something that's experienced. It's something that we use in, in multiple different ways. Now, in the book, we're primarily looking at moral repertoires, which are uh, competing systems of evaluating what is good and what is not, right? Uh, what is uh, worthy and what is unworthy um, as it pertains to research. And if you think about it, so, you know, just think of the, the, your random department colloquium, right? When we get to the Q&A, we oftentimes see multiple ways of evaluating uh, the work that's just been presenting, right? And if someone could come and say, oh, you know, your methods are completely wrong, uh, your inferences are unrelated to the actual data, and so on, right? And in a sense, evaluate your work um, out of, a, you know, the, the, point, the point of view that good sociological work is work that's meticulous in terms of its methodology. But then your other colleague might come and say, excuse me, your work actually um, doesn't include the voice of your um, the, your interviewees. Uh, we're not, you know, you're talking about them like as, um, you know, as a disconnected uh, researcher. You're not really giving voice to this uh, underserved um, uh, population. I'm worried about the power dynamics between you you know, the ethnographer, let's say, and um, the, the the actual population, right? So they would be coming from 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 a point of view uh, that says good sociology is sociology that respects its, uh, respects that empowers its uh, research subjects. But right? we can continue on and on. But the point is that we're, um, we, we have so many different ways of evaluating what's good sociology. And so we're it, which is based on what sort of goods sociology should provide. 
so in our um, in our book, and we provide many examples of this, right? We're looking at the common debates that we have in the discipline. The big disagreements is disagreements that are actually about um, uh, morality, right? About what's moral, what's right to do uh, as a sociology, and how does it apply to our to our actual research. Sam, I don't know if you. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. No, so I, I would. Yeah, I was just thinking about your comment about philosophy, and I think yeah, like, you know, Shai and I come at morality from this very strongly sociological perspective, which is, you know, morality is not a question of ultimate right or wrong, but about what people agree is right or wrong, right? What people agree is good, and what will help promote the good. And of course, ironically, sociologists are like, <laughs> at times, you know, they're more committed to their moral projects than they are to thinking sociologically about their own morality, of course, right? And so what we try to do is kind of think sociologically about how in this field where there are sort of definite stances to be taken about what's right, what's wrong, um, do people come to consensus about, okay, well, this is okay, this is too far, this is way out of line. And, you know, there's tensions, there's underlying tensions that never go away. And I think, you know, one of the things people often hear when they say, when we say sociology is kind of driven by moral concerns is that, well, no, 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 good sociology is scientific, right? Like it's always gotta be scientific. And our point is not that scientific justifications don't matter in sociology, of course they do, right? We have to produce high quality, scientific, rigorous explanations but if I produce a high quality, rigorous explanation that blames a research population for its own oppression, if I blame the victim in traditional sociological parlance, that will not get published, right? We live in a field where these two things have to balance out. And part of what the discussion in the field is and part of what learning to navigate a colloquium talk is about, right, is that somebody will stand at your colloquium talk and say, oh, you did an ethnography and I'm quantitative and I don't like this and, you know, they'll get mad, right? And and it feels like, oh, oh man, I, I blew up a minefield, right? But this is actually like kind of regular sociological debate, right? Which is the person is asking you to, they're not saying, I'll never believe you, I don't care, whatever. They're saying, please show me how you justify this concern. And then somebody else will stand up and say, I'm concerned your work is politically regressive and that you're going to hurt people. And so then you kind of say, okay, well, here's my justification, right? And a large part of the work is learning to live in a field where there are strong moral claims about what you do. And so how do you present yourself and balance and achieve recognizable success in some ways, right? Like how do other people recognize your claims as true when you openly acknowledge and try to address those concerns? I think here I would just also say for our listeners, you have a section early on in the book where you talk about your own your you know your own approach to these these questions and taking a very pragmatic, practically oriented, you know, sort of um, yeah, practice oriented approach to this um, to to talk about how people respond to and navigate these kinds of tensions when these different moral justifications are. Are brought uh, are brought up as critiques of of one's um, of one's research and and program and the fact that you know 
you have to respond to them and acknowledge that critique is part of, you know, your membership in this scholarly community, you know, just dismissing somebody, let's say you're an ethnographer and just dismissing somebody who has a more quantitative or um, sort of scientific, you, you might say, orientation to the field, just saying, you know, you're wrong and I'm, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore is not helpful. Um, you know, we don't share a field anymore, you know, is not helpful. Uh, it's not helpful to your career. It's not helpful. It just, just, it's, not, it's not a morally good thing to do if you want to um, signal your ongoing membership in this uh, scholarly community. Well, I think, you know, I think Shai and I really, and you're, you're right to hone in on the pragmatic nugget of it is like, you know, sociology is, you know, I think it's actually good at times for people to say, I don't want to be friends anymore, right? In the middle of a workshop, right? But that's like, that's real, you know, that people argue and talk like that. I think, you know, for Shai and I, what's most important is that people keep talking, right? And that, you know, what models healthy behavior in this discipline is not only, you know, kind of being open to critiques, but being honest about, you know, where those critiques come from and how you want them addressed and, and how you're to help. And, you know, I think our goal really is to to bring people in the discipline together around this fact that like, yeah, sometimes we fight and sometimes we get um, intense, but that's because we all care about this thing called sociology and ultimately this thing called society, hopefully, right? That, you know, we are all engaged in this project together for that cause. And, and, and on top of that, I mean, yeah, I completely agree with Sam, but and, and I, I think also like just understanding that you know, working together in a department, in a professional association is work. I mean, it takes work for us, you know, with our different uh, viewpoints or different ideas of where sociology should go. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're in the same department, you're going to have to sit on a committee together and make decisions um, together, right? Because um, if... You know, if a department's at a point where it can't do that, right, then it's it it's it's headed for trouble, right? So that is, I think, really the the core of the book is about seeing like how, given the fact that we're so diverse in our um, outlooks, and you know, there are multiple different views of even what sociology is, but at the same time, you know, the the the, the discipline has survived for like more than a century now. And has weathered very serious um, um, internal debates. So, um, in that sense, I think that that that's another element of the pragmatism that we're trying to push forward in the book. Okay, well, that's a great segue to talking about the central part of the book. You know, three chapters focus on responses that are available when a research program is challenged on moral grounds. So can you walk us through an example of research that's significantly altered, but not abandoned as the result of a controversy, what you call renegotiation in the book? I feel like Shai should take this one. Shai is better at this spiel than I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for the compliment. Um, yeah, I think so we have several. So, so the book is organized around several different um, study cases of uh, historical debates and their and their outcomes. Um, one of our, the main chapters is on um, the study on nationalism, 
Uh, and the ways it's uh, transformed since, um, what do you say, Sam, the 70s, yeah, 90s, 80s? Late 90s, yeah. like early 80s, late 90s, yeah, kind of global, since since globalization became a, a fundamental part of the public conversation in some way, right? Yeah, because um, th things that were true, let's say, in the 1960s, right, about uh, boundaries, about uh, the global order, really transformed through, you know, the unification of Europe, um, the uh, uh, Chernobyl disaster that got uh, a lot of uh, attention toward the global risk, right? And the fact that we all um, share, you know, on some level, right, have a shared interest in keeping our planet um, together and in monitoring uh, nuclear activity uh, and so on and so forth. Now, um, as, as, we show in the chapter intellectually um, these political and uh, environmental changes also uh, created a problem for sociologists working on uh, topics like immigration, um, you know, national culture, right? Um, uh, anything having to do with um, uh, kind of assuming that a society is just bounded by the political borders of, of the state nation state it happens to be in um now um you know late 80s early 90s uh scholars like Ulrich uh beck uh john Uri, uh manuel castells uh, um several others primarily in in europe uh came out with very strong statements that sociology just needs to completely reshape its um um you know conceptual toolkit to account for this new era, right? The things are completely uh, different now. Uh, all of our old assumptions about society kind of presupposed uh, nation state kind of put, you know, holding society together. Uh, and we need to think instead of like about boundaries and about flows and about uh, uh, connections and so on and so forth. Now, uh, in many ways, this was uh, this was true and extremely productive. So, if you look at the citation count for the, these um, work, they're astronomical. Uh, but at the same time, so many of the problems that you know sociologists of immigration, for example, um, have been concerned with for a long time didn't go away, right? And also, the sociologists working on those topics uh, didn't go away, but um, I had to kind of reframe what it is that they're doing to use more careful language around um, uh, the, the nation state, right? The fact, basically explain why the nation state remains relevant uh, in an era of, um, you, know, you know, serious changes, let's say, to the uh, global order. Uh, and here we're also seeing, we're also seeing and highlight the emergence of new ways of kind of thinking in sociology about what nation, nationhood is and what it provides. So for, for example, one stream of uh, research uh, char characterized um, um, in particular by looking at discourse, right? And what like talk of nationalism does um, really kind of shifted the attention from asking, you know, well, do our nation states uh, still important or not? To asking about how do, how do people talk about um nationhood or the the nation and in what ways is um this talk kind of politically um and socially effective right uh another stream of research that uh emerged like you know it, it 
after this uh, shift is um, um, research on how na- the relationship between historical forms of nationalism and positive um, civic engagement, uh, social, uh, social movements, uh, NGOs, um, um, charitable organizations, and so on. Um, so in many ways, the field of you know, nationalism research, as well as uh, immigration and anything else having to do with transnationalism really uh, had to reshape itself given the strong critique of um, uh, those scholars in the, the late 20th century that our old tools aren't working anymore. In the sense that you kind of make a convincing case that no, it is good. It remains a, a positive and, and a valuable thing to study nations. Yeah, I mean, I would just, yeah, so that story, right, is really about, I would say both public and scholarly discourse about, quote unquote, the end of the nation. No, the interesting thing about um, all of this discourse, including what Sam just said, you know, the proposition that, uh, you know, nationalism is behind us and so on, is that it um, ascribes a negative quality to um, nationalism, oftentimes uh, using the term sometimes very loosely by to uh, explain wars, um, conflict, racism, uh, colonialism, right? Um, where um, where where cosmopolitanism is whatever is is you know su- succeeds. Um, Na- uh, nationalism as the the antidote, right? Um, so in that sense, the thinking about nationalism for you know the past forty years has been infused with um, uh, moralistic ideas about what's you know what ought to happen right in society, and uh, in a sense, this way, what, how sociologists should study society and which direction should society uh, take becomes inter- intertwined in at least some of the discourse about the phenomenon. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like the folks who either, because they studied something that relies on a national boundary and the politics and policies associated with who's in and who's out, or who's allowed across that boundary and who's not, you can't really get rid of that in the case of immigration. But it's a shift in the terrain of discussion to talk about how maybe American citizens or American, you know, residents think about the United States as an entity that that has or is assumed to have a shared, you know, sense of culture and history and and the construction of the meanings around that. So instead of just taking the nation state as a political and cultural, more broadly social entity for granted and not even questioning that, Beck and the other folks you mentioned help the, that field question that assumption and then reframe their response to suggest that nonetheless it's still important to talk about nations as entities that have their own qualities even if those qualities not everyone agrees on them right or there's tension in internally to those groups yeah well and i i think too to your point right like Oren beck is aggressive like he is an aggressive writer saying like you know just that cosmopolitan here to stay and it's time to wake up we will no longer talk about the nation and so it provokes this response of and and yeah like i think you know it, it's a good it's partially a good example of the way in which you know this kind of works is like you know there's this like very definite statement from warwick beck that all research on the nation is dead and doomed 
And so if you're gonna, you know, and so if you're gonna do this, you're gonna have to rethink it. And people really do. I mean, I think people really emerge into that vacuum to say this thing that we understood before, it's a case of something else. And that's still important too, right? And I think that kind of work is actually really important in sociology in terms of helping the discipline kind of rethink what it's doing, you know, as the world changes, as we kind of understand what's going on. Okay, well, in addition to, maybe not in addition to, but along with the talk of moral justifications and how fields change, I mean, I do think motivating the book, it seems, is a, a deep question that's occupied a lot of people, sociologists, philosophers, historians of science, for a long time, which is about what drives change in scientific fields and research domains. And you certainly draw upon and reference uh, Kuhn's theory that he set out in the structure of scientific revolutions. So maybe you can talk about how you draw on Kuhn, where you where you take some of those ideas, or how you you know bounce off of them and, and reflect on them in the book. Because as a person who has studied sociology of science and technology, and I'm also very interested in this question too. Uh, yeah, it's a fun question. Yeah, who doesn't love Kuhn? He's <laughs> great, great thinker. Yeah. Uh, so the core of our argument really is that. You know, Kuhn is really interested in scientific anomalies, what he calls scientific anomalies. And generally, Kuhn treats those as errors in evidence, right? Problems in interpreting evidence and concerns about interpreting evidence. And our argument is that, well, sure, but those concerns may also be normative. And that, in fact, in a discipline like sociology, where, you know, I would just say normative concerns are more on the face of it. Right? They're just more central into part of what we're doing intrinsically because of our public orientation, our public responsibilities, like what we claim to be doing. Um, that normative concerns are actually a key way in which we identify and change the social sciences, right? That we say, oh, this theory may be great, but it treats people like robots. And so that's not the people I know. We have to make, we have to do better, right? And so I think that's kind of the major way that we kind of challenge Kuhn in some way, but we do really draw heavily on this idea from Kuhn of scientific change being a community driven project. And, you know, right now, I have a paper, it's under review. It's about like, how do we take this stuff we're working on now and think about progress and the question of progress and what is progress in social science? Um, and a lot of that paper is about, you know, how Kuhn is interested in a collective vision of how science changes, that it's not one person, right? It's a revolution. The way sociology has, at least as of now, been progressing has not been one anomaly, one revolution, one anomaly, one revolution. It doesn't go one, two, three, four. We are a multi-paradigmatic field. And so progress isn't so much one field beating the other. It's not the scientists saying, ha ha, we got you political people. Now you'll never, you'll never be in charge of the discipline, right? Uh, we've got you ethnographers. Now you can never do this kind of reason. No, 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 no. The way the field works is that some plunky ethnographer sits down and reads super interesting quantitative research and then goes and tries to challenge it, right? And that the more that we actually kind of build these divergent positions on what makes good research, the more the field starts to grow. And so the way we talk about that is we say, 
new, the accumulation of new justifications, of new ways of talking about what makes this worthy is really, you know, kind of what progress looks like in a field like this to say, uh, and, and ultimately that means that we have to, that part of what progress looks like in the field is that we find new and more resonant ways continually to ask each other about what is this thing called sociology and what makes it good. And so, you know, like whatever, in the book we have seven repertoires, <laughs> but the point is, is actually that sociologists are always working on kind of trying to come up with new ways of, you know, so new debates, new anomalies, these are about generating new ways of understanding the human person as worthy and just and supporting a project to study that and, and the communities they form. So would you, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, I would just say that, um, um, as Sam said, that, that the community, as, as a community, um, even a loosely, very, very loosely tethered one, um, <clears throat> sociology has, you know, debated these exact questions of what, you know, what should we, what's good sociology, what good are we providing to the world? Since its very inception, so um, if we re reread the history of sociology through that lens, the lens of uh, not just you know not just the uh, empirical discovery, the theoretical innovation, but also the the changes in thinking about what is uh, what ought we do. Um, I think we can um, really like identify the work that's gone into kind of keeping us together and giving sociology kind of a, a shared sense of meaning and direction. Uh, so I think in that sense, we're adding to, to, to the existing literature, which we, we, we're not trying to undermine, but we're just trying to kind of show that there was more to it uh, than just the you know, empirical anom anomalies and discovery. So I'm hearing you in some ways say, you know, this is a, a, a model or a theory of scientific change, you know, in maybe the social sciences. Do you think, uh, or would you say other social science disciplines are similar to this? I mean, there are multi-paradigmatic, other multi-paradigmatic disciplines, you know, political science, um, you know, econ to some extent, um, psychology, certainly, um, you know, anthropology, absolutely. Um, what do you think about sort of uh, applying this this uh, this repertoire's framework that you've that you've got in other contexts? Yeah, so absolutely. Like our point is not to claim that sociology has a unique purview on claims about the moral world. Um, although, you know, one thing that I think Shai and I at least kind of do believe is that. You know, a lot of people talk about sociology as weakly institutionalized, and they talk about that as a very negative thing. I think Shine, I think about it as a very positive thing, actually, that like actually part of what makes it so, you know, what makes the discipline worth doing is that it's all these people who are forced to talk to one another, right? And so what I would kind of say is that sociology is a little bit, you know, because it's so poorly institutionalized, it's a good place to find a diversity of moral values in ways that you might not in other disciplines. But at the same time, of course, yeah, the other disciplines. So, you know, we talk a lot about anthropology, Shai and I a lot, in part because uh, anthropology went through a crisis in the late 1980s, well known as the crisis of representation, uh, where the field kind of collapsed because nobody could agree upon 
what constituted high quality representation and what was just and fair in representation. And Anthro these days now has undergone what they call the normative turn, which uh, is basically, you know, in some ways similar to what Shai and I are talking about, which emphasizes that, you know, what matters is how you justify your representation. How do you normatively claim your justification is mat matters. And so, you know, we're interested in those debates, but then I think also too, you know, we think about a science like econ and, you know, econ, I would say has traditionally been dominated by the, the moral repertoire that Shai and I call the market logic, right? The idea that free markets are beneficial and competition is beneficial for the society. But of course, as Shai and I were talking about before, you know, this Peckety book that came out, whatever, like uh, now it's like a few years, like a decade ago or something, but made a huge impact, right? Where Piketty said, you know, like, it appears that this classic fundamental belief us economists have about how interest works in the economy is wrong. And it is our civic duty to rearrange the discipline so that we don't keep supporting this kind of regressive system. And, you know, I mean, like, like any field, it, 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 it remains to be seen how that will play out. And so, but for sure, we think like other fields have this. There's also lately, I've been reading a lot about the sociology of science and the sociology of math. And you find these things there as well, right? Some math innovations are justified on grounds of creativity, right? A, a very kind of bizarre, seemingly unscientific justificatory regime, right? Um, and, and in chemistry, you hear about this. And so, you know, I think our point is not that sociologists are a, and, and this we should be very clear, us sociologists, we are not moral exemplars. We are not somehow specifically good moral people better than others, right? We're just like everyone else, but we just deal in this field where these concerns are a little bit more openly debated and institutionalized and, and part of what it means to do this activity. All right, that's really, yeah. that's really helpful. Go ahead, Shai. No, I mean, I, I would just add that, um we are not attempting to uh, impose our like our view of sociology onto like all other social uh, sciences because you know with the understanding that each each discipline has its own history that where the specific repertoires that it um, accumulated with time that it developed the the various crises that it uh, so so uh, Sam referred to the crisis of representation and. Uh, anthropology, um, you know, all of those had a really, really different effect on the way things shaped out in those disciplines. But um, we are uh, trying to offer the tools to look for, to, to kind of identify um, the repertoires that have become acceptable, institutionalized, uh, popular, right, in um, not just in sociology, but in our, our neighboring disciplines. Um, and in a sense, help uh, perhaps map out uh, both, you know, both um, kind of things that went away, right, types of research that uh, disappeared with time, but also perhaps emerging ways of thinking about the field. And, you know, I think in, in econ that uh, Sam mentioned, right, you know, the new kind of interest in, uh, following Piketty's um, book, right, may signal a new, an emerging new way of thinking about econ. Uh, right. I mean, it remains to be seen, but uh, it could, you know, in time develop into like a legitimate repertoire uh, within econ. 
I was really thinking about as I read the book, you know, your data sources and where folks make positions. I mean, we already mentioned Beck and uh, and Piketty and, uh, and other folks. There are these like landmark kind of books or arguments that make just, you know, they ripple through many areas of the discipline. But there are also, I think, records that we leave behind as folks who, you know, uh, either maybe a blurb a book or I haven't done that yet. But, you know, if, if one were to blurb a book or were to write a foreword to one or just in the case of peer review, right? I mean, what is peer review except, you know, trying to understand, you know, what the author or authors have done, how they've done it? Uh, is that a worthwhile thing to do? How do they frame their contribution? And so I'm thinking, you know, what about those editor reports? So you write up and you say, you know, this is a great example of this work in this field because of this reason, right? Yeah. Or as some yeah. of us, some of us are about to do, this yeah. paper is terrible for the following for the following reasons, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're we're super interested in in trying to find a way. So the so science the journal has a public record of reviewer comments and editors letters and stuff that you can you can download and, and analyze. And we're interested in that. But even more than that, I think Shai and I are both really interested in trying to get into the ASA archives to see the history of publication because it must be the case that. I mean, whatever, we know this from work by Michelle Mont and others that moral justification is a part of reviewing, right? That's a, a core part of what the activity looks like. And so, you know, it seems too hard to get the living. So maybe the dead will help us. <laughs> we can look at the records of the dead and we can find out what because happened I back then. That so oftentimes when, you know, when you have the experience, you sent out an article to review for, uh, to review, it comes back several months later with this reviewer report that you're like, what like how did they even it i you know i didn't even say anything uh like they're saying i i did and so on sometimes i mean that's that surprise i mean comes exactly from the fact that they're using like your work is being evaluated with a repertoire that you were just not expecting you know thinking about right you were saying oh i'm just i'm just um doing a simple you know, survey-based study and sometimes su suddenly someone tells you like, well, did you even take into consideration the fact that you're populate, you know, you might be harming the population uh, that you're trying to study and so on um, or something else. So I think definitely it lives in peer reviews uh, where oftentimes also under the guise of anonymity, um, reviewers allow themselves to say, to say, really, to say much more what's actually bothering them uh, with your article than they would, you know, in a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, I also think that um, in, in some of the sections, right, uh, some of the sections of ASA, um, if you look historically at the newsletters, especially as uh, a section tries to form itself and so on, um, you're going to find a lot of questions about, you know, what are we here to do and so on um we collected um some newsletters uh from the early days of the culture section and there was definitely a lot of conversations about the, what 
what is the suction for really? What are we what are we trying to promote? And certainly in the altruism morality and social solidarity sections early days, right? You know, where there was like you know that, that that's an easy one, right? Given the the name of the uh, section, but um, I think the newsletters really say a lot about um, um, the, the the more direct ways in which people are thinking about these questions, as opposed to a journal article, right? Um, so those are those are the areas that we're kind of thinking about right now and looking for um, ways to research them. Well, as someone who spent a lot of time working on a newsletter for one of the sections, it both fascinates me, but maybe it horrifies me a bit to think about the use of those newsletters as data. Yeah, you have to be very, yeah, yeah, yeah. very yeah, yeah, that's the... careful, as you should be with any any uh, research <laughs> subject, right? But give, especially given the fact yeah, yeah. that your research subject might read what you wrote about them uh, and have a different um reading of it than you then it um of course you know and we've we spent a lot of time also and like when we were working on this book um on you know actually talking to um to people who are working in the field um we had we were very lucky to have a book conference actually where we were able to have people who have who were actually there kind of be able to comment on the book, uh, on the, the book manuscript and kind of um, um, bring up things that, you know, we, we would not have been able to identify had we not had those conversations. Well, that that's great. Um, and I'll get over maybe being a subject of a uh, study at some point. Uh, um, but as I read the book, I was thinking about some controversies in the field that that I've seen. Uh, having been around for a bit. So, for example, the controversy over Alice Goffman's research for On the Run, uh, which was criticized on multiple fronts, uh, some of which would be how close she was to the participants in her research, her level of involvement in their lives, and claims she made about the connections between policing and other institutions like hospitals. So, how could you, or how can your work help us understand sociologists' response to this line of inquiry or this particular case? Yeah, so this case was big when Shai and I were at grad school at Yale. And like, I remember he and I really, you know, it's a really clear example of metacommunication, right? Of scholars not only doing research, but then publicly responding and debating, is this research up to snuff, right? And I think um, there's kind of two super interesting things. The first is that, you know, the, the Goffman piece, the Goffman uh, book was like ripped apart from so many different of these repertoires, right? So there was one, you know, I don't remember, there's one person who like went through like page by page kind of analyzing. And then there were other people who kind of like reported what they knew about the research, right? All these different perspectives um, on what made the research worthy or unworthy and therefore what makes ethnography worthy or unworthy. And as part of that, the ethnographers came out and sort of said, you know, some of them said, this research isn't all that bad, right? This research is what we call research, right? And, you know, we know that you positivists over there may not like it, but this is, you know, parts of this are legitimate. I mean, I think most of the people came out kind of said these parts, you know, not so much, but, um, you know, and I think what the Goffman case shows you is that 
the boundaries around what counts as good sociology are continuously open for debate. And that when work really makes a splash, one should expect in some ways that multiple different perspectives will try to kind of understand or assail or criticize or make more robust whatever these findings are. So, you know, besides all the critics too, other people also drew on Goffman's work to do scholarship on over-policing, for instance, right? And to try to corroborate those claims. And, and all of these different responses are, you know, and Shai and I would say are, are in some way people kind of responding to what they, and kind of trying to demonstrate what they think good policing is, you know? And, you know, every year, you know, part of what the fun of being a sociologist every year, there's, there should be a new book like that from a sociologist, right? Saying, you know, where do you stand in position to this work and how do you think about it? And that's, that's what it means to have a discussion as a discipline in some ways. Yeah. And obviously that the interesting case about that, um, the interesting thing about that, that book was that it brought together um, at least three ways of thinking about sociology into a, into a debate, um, right? On one hand, um, researchers were saying, you know, the, the researchers' uh, obligation is to protect their subjects, right? And in ethnography, especially of, a, you know, scene um, of, of a site where the participants are particularly vulnerable, creating a composite character uh, using um, elements that, have, that the ethnographer has observed in several sites is a practice that we we might do in order to protect uh, the identities of the people who are actually involved, right? Uh, on the other side, we're seeing uh, people who um, see um, um, accuracy, right? And methodological um precision is something that's uh, that's core to our identity as sociologists and they would say well how, you, you can't reconcile this with the fact that things you know if things are reported and they didn't really uh happen right so that kind of trumps the protection side and then on the third uh, <laughs> side we have people saying like well this book highlights uh, a devastating social problem in in our society, right? And if you know, and that fine, you know, there are methodological questions, there are ethical questions, but at the end of the day, it's doing um, a huge service to to the United States as a as a society, but basically pinpointing that. So from our perspective, each of these repertoires, right, uh, kind of uh, comes to light. In the meta meta communication around uh, Alice Goffman's book. Okay, awesome. Uh, yeah, it was uh, was quite a controversy. I, I'm not sure these things will ever end. You know, which I think is another example of just the the pragmatism in the in the stance you take in the book, right? So for pragmatists, you know, truth is what you find at the ideal limit of inquiry, and probably the many pragmatists would say, you know, there might, that that's a horizon that you're, you're going towards, you know, you might never actually like, you know, fully reach it. So it's about sort of, you know, these provisional, although highly, um, highly robust um, conclusions that you might make at a particular point in time. And so the repertoires that you identify are helping us 
think through how those conversations unfold and the and the reasons people give for their um, engagement in those in those conversations. Okay, so you argue in the book that sociology's multiple moral repertoires are a source of innovation, leading to new questions and thus new lines of research. And in the book, you also say, so this is one of the ways that sociology expands and is always expanding instead of relying on uniformity, as you were saying with, with Kuhnian, like paradigm shifts and, and sort of the reconstitution of a field around a particular way of thinking about doing, um, doing science. So sociology expands instead of relying on uniformity, uh, it rather flourishes when there's disagreement among moral repertoires. So are you saying that sociology is not characterized by rigid and stifling wokeness that punishes people for researching controversial topics or taking unpopular stances? I just want to get you on the record uh, for posterity. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, um, I mean, look, obviously we're not saying that the phenomenon does not exist, right? I mean, that there are, absolutely, there are people who um, pay uh, some sometimes dearly for engaging in controversial topics. Um, it, we have, so we mentioned in the book, there's a whole, um, like, growing sub subfield of um kind of uh research on you know, basically the fear of getting uh getting uh, ostracized or getting having something negative happen if you choose the wrong topic in in grad school uh and so on um and also we demonstrate in uh in the book um we have a chapter showing that historically yes um topics that were unacceptable that uh de denied some uh, parts of the population, their full humanity, uh, were rightly um, uh, excised from the discipline uh, and became unacceptable. And we're, we're certainly talking about the Spencerian um, kind of legacy in the, the first part of the 20th century, uh, but in sociology as an example. Uh, at the same time, our point in the book is that uh, sociology can't be boiled down to um, stifling and rigid uh, 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 political correctness, right? And that um, social that you know, working sociologists are just terrified of making the wrong move. Uh, and instead, what well, I think what we wrote the book for really is to show that uh, we have many, many different ways of engaging with controversial topics. Um, some of them involve actually addressing what you know the problem like you know just, just jumping in and addressing like what it is that uh we think is controversial but others involve you know reframing our our research questions right you know trying to like uh um acknowledge the problem and then find you know a way to to kind of move away from it we also show that we have many ways of circumventing a problem right you know and i think could be as uh simple you know as writing in your the introduction to your um um article manuscript you know yeah we totally know that this is an important uh that there's a problem in this area i hear all the citations about it uh at the same time you know we're bracketing that uh for the time being right and there's more serious ways you know that actually like um uh you know creating new directions for research that kind of move us away from um dead end debates that sometimes occur um so yeah so i would so i would not say characterize that sociology is characterized 
by uh, stifling um, PC. Uh, I don't know if Sam Sam would agree. Yeah, with yeah, that, no, no, like, no, yeah. So it's, like, it's a phenomenon, right? But it's not it's not everything that we do. Yeah, it's part of it, right? Part of it is is yeah. learning to live with people who feel very passionately about some social problem or issue. And so at times you can feel like you're talking to somebody who is rigid in their moral commitments. And I think, you know, the point of the book is that the answer is not simply to ignore them, but to engage and try to deepen your work so that you address those concerns. And I think the reality is that there are some people, you know, there's there's real people in the discipline who are just kind of obstinate. And there and some of those people are super woke and some of those people are like hyper positivists and some of those people are just deep into charisma. And so they're like anything that doesn't sound like Weber is useless to me. Right. And, you know, our, our point is that, like, actually, you know, to advance, you know, the, the the work that gets published, like in the top journals, in the annual reviews in the stuff that, you know, comes to help define a discipline in some ways is often work that does the opposite, which finds ways to blend, to think about the moral gray areas and expand those for analysis instead of having an answer, right? And knowing what the right answer is and making sure everyone follows. And so, you know, I think you find some of that in sociology, but I think part of what sociology is, is like, again, working those boundaries. And so ideally, right, like the book, it encourages people not to fall into that trap. We call it in the book, we call it moral myopia, thinking with only one moral framework. And so the goal is to think like, actually, you know, good sociology is about blending all that stuff and trying to find ways to do it all kind of together. People say I sound a little too kumbaya when I talk about the book. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, or at the very least, learning to live with, um, Learning to live with disagreement, mm, uh, much including, better. Um, no, including you know, running a department where yeah, I I actually like where I I know that I have uh, you know, um, a disagreement with uh, someone over you know their standards of evaluation, but at the same time, if we don't sit down together and make this commit hiring committee works, we're not gonna get that line filled. And we're both going to have to do more work because of that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, um, right. So it, what we want to encourage, you know, maybe not, you know, not everyone likes um, or has to like, you know, that's the plurality, but at the same time, we're trying to get um, the readers to acknowledge that the plurality exists and like it or not, we're, we, we're going to have to find a way to to cooperate. And there are historical, many historical ways outlined in the book where uh, that cooperation did happen. And I, I do, you're, what you're saying here reminds me of uh, a department conflict I witnessed up close, but wasn't personally a party to. Uh, and, and I do think that using the framework that you've outlined here would have been much more helpful to think with than what many people thought the conflict was over, at least from the sidelines, which it was kind of couched in a qualitative versus quantitative methods dispute. And I don't think that was really, you know, after reflecting on it a long, for a long time uh, and then reading your book, I don't think that's what it was about, about at all. And then it makes me, so I'm now a department chair and it makes me think about what, um, what 
one might be on the lookout for, especially if you are uh, in a position of, um, you know, helping to helping a department, you know, thrive or, or flourish, right? And, and just in terms of how people relate to each other. All right, well, I'm glad I, I got a chance uh, to have you all weigh in on the controversy of uh, wokeness and sociology and, and a call for um, you know, moral humility um, instead of moral myopia. Um, I want to just thank thank you all both for um, for writing this book. It's it's super interesting. It definitely helped me see things in a in a new light. Um, but before I let you go, now that I've had you talk about one controversy uh, and the public perception of sociology, maybe let's talk about New Haven for our little for our little banter mm. segment. You, Sam mentioned okay. that you were both uh, at at Yale and. Many people know that there's a famous rivalry among pizza joints. Uh, I personally have had uh, have been gifted with some some pizza in New Haven before, and it's it's was a lovely experience. Uh, um, I'm happy to have you tell us about your favorites, but maybe we can go somewhere else. Are there restaurants or venues in New Haven that folks who visit the city and or Yale should try? Yeah, shy. What should I say? Rubamba. Oh. Rubamba on um it's either on York or on High Street. Um excellent, excellent Colombian uh restaurant. It's really small, it's really low-key. Um it's um uh very um it's 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 hard to describe what's so great about it, but it it was definitely one of my comfort food places um in grad school and recently i was back in new haven for a conference and i went and got an um arepa there and it was just like it was in grad school so if i have one recommendation that would be the arepas are good the arepas are very good yeah i mean yeah yeah uh, so my my friends will be more impressed by this question about pizza than any of the sociology talk i've done because that's the only thing they care about (laughs) uh so pizza. Yeah. So I love pizza. I eat a lot of pizza. I live in New York now. I'm a, you know, best pizza in the world. You know, there's a lot of huge debate, New York, New Haven. Blah, blah, blah. I won't weigh in on that now. We don't want to get too controversial. Uh, but what I will say is if you're in New Haven, the place to go that nobody really knows about is called zoo parties and it's over by the beach and you can go over there and they have, one of the big, one of the signature New Haven dishes is the clam pizza, which you can get at most of the the establishments. If you're, if you ask me, the best is either Sally's or Modern. It's just up to you. Sally's takes a lot longer. Sally's. Yeah, you know, Sally's is older, more classic. Modern, I think, is it's a it can be a more enjoyable experience because you can show up and sit down and eat a pizza and leave. At Sally's, you know, there's like waiting in line and. No, and- <laughs> Yeah, so Sally's the thing. The thing is, there's gonna be a long line outside. You're gonna um, finally. I think they're closed now. They're closed both on Mondays and Tuesdays, and, and you're very likely to end there. End up there on a Tuesday uh, without knowing it and going going home disappointed. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally, um, totally, yeah. So, you're, so you're gonna wait in line. It's very likely going to snow to be snowing or something. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that that's always been but the pizza the pizza is incredible uh, but the pizza is incredible yeah. incredible because um the thing with new haven pizza 
yeah, it's 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 not just a thin crust. It's that it's been really, really like charred, mm. like uh, not just on the bottom, right, Sam, but also like the the sides. Yeah, the sides. It's, like, yeah, it's very, like charry. Yeah, that's part of the. It's it's charred, right, and then um, uh, and it's just thin enough that you have to like kind of fold it over mm. to eat it, but it's just it's delicious. Mm. So I agree. I mean, Pepe's is great too but peppers tends to be more greasy and i i just don't like the yeah yeah i don't like the pizza that like greasy um so yeah i i concur with sam that if you if you have patience then sally's if not then uh modern modern uh also has the pizza with uh the cherry peppers. oh hot cherry peppers yeah that's a characteristic that, hot cherry yeah, pepper is a, a kind really... of characteristic new york topping or i mean new haven topping mm-hmm. and then yeah but yeah zuparty's Zuparty's is by the beach, and the reason I recommend it is that the clam pies, if you eat clams, are fresh. They shuck them fresh onto the pizza for you, and then afterwards you can go around the corner to Stowe's, which is uh, a fish fry down on the beach, and you can get uh, some more New Haven delights. New Haven is known for its fried seafood as well. And then, Sam, what's your take on bar? Bar pizza, I love. I had my I had my wedding reception at bar. At bar, you can get the delicious uh, mashed potato Mm. pizza. Their unique offering, Um, Rupa, very nice. Um, You know, never really to me breached the kind of top ten. I would put Zuparties above bar. Bar's great, (laughs) delicious pizza, nice place to hang out, drink a beer. But Zuparties, you're like this place contributed to the tradition. Dan is well, looking at us now like I asked no, the I've wrong been, I'm in the bar. question. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just, uh, just an asterisk. So, bar isn't in the like New Haven pizza like category. So it's like a different entity, in my opinion, at least. Right? You know, so it's like this because modern Sally's and and Pepe's. That's the you know, that's what you think of when you think of. Uh, uh, no even pizza, but I yeah, I bars think like bar bars like an actual bar. They have shows there, so it's like cool. People yeah, are there, they're like yeah, dancing yeah. and stuff. Like this is like a New Haven a Pete's place. You kind of want somebody who's like a little bit like sit down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say though that New Haven in general, I was surprised by how lively the food scene um was up there. You know, like yeah, you know, I moved there not knowing anything about about it i knew that it was like smaller than any place that i lived before so uh it it does really have very lively um diverse um food scene there all right so zoo party is for uh pizza off the sally frank pepe and modern modern track all right so sam sam what about other uh venues maybe outside the pizza realm in new haven Oh, besides eating pizza in New Haven, I mean, whatever. I just like cheese, right? So Cassius downtown is the place. It's like a oh, cheese shop and they have... I think they closed. Oh, I heard they... I oh, they really? Closed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no. I think the cheese shop is there. It was It was good. Yeah, was but good. they... The cheese shop is still there. They had a mac and cheese that was to die for. I would really go crazy over it. Yeah. Very good. Uh, With jalapenos. Jalapeno. Yeah, very good. And then... You know, Dan, I ate too okay. much pizza. All right, That's so all. I mean, you pizza's heard my favorite first. food. My grandmother used to say I would turn, I would turn into a yeah. pizza. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, how could we forget uh, the pantry? The pantry. Okay, so you have to be there very early. 
there's gonna be oh yeah the pantry yeah me and try this book was hatched actually at the pantry shy and i used to go get breakfast at this place the pantry up in east rock and they have a cinnamon roll yeah, but... pancake which is like oh no that would be incredible it really like um outstanding ex benedict uh the thing is it's like if you're not there first thing when they open there's going to be a long long line okay so it's like uh uh it could be a could be a long wait so uh it's cash only as are many uh new haven establishments <laughs> i don't know if it still is but it uh used to be um excellent yeah the cinnamon roll pancake the uh, blueberry pancakes um yeah the all the various like benedicts or just delicious yeah and then also i would go to there's a bar downtown called firehouse which is an abandoned firehouse you can go down the stairs uh, and it's like a jazz club and a bar and they have, they actually have really good food there as well. Um, so those would be my, my recommendations. Okay. Well, uh, everybody, if you get a chance to go to New Haven, you've got some more recommendations, uh, from two, from two experts who are, uh, who are well, well, truly controversial yeah. topics. Sociology is nothing yeah. compared to this. Yeah. Man. Well, I'm aware, like I said, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of the controversy over, over the pizza, but, uh, you've given us other things to, uh, to think about and perhaps chew on, uh, including the fact that Sam Stabler is 95% pizza. So, um, <laughs> so that's good. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, Sam Stabler and Shai uh, Dromi, it's so good to talk with you. Thanks so much for your book. I hope folks are uh, intrigued enough by our conversation today to go and, and check it out because it really does help us think about our discipline in uh, at least for me a new and creative way that, that helps explain a lot of experiences and and then um, unpack uh, why uh, why certain things become controversial and then how we can all um, learn to get along in our in our fractured but creative discipline. So thank thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, really appreciate yes having us on. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Thanks to my guests today, Shai Dromi and Sam Stabler. Thanks also to Joe Cohen, who directs the Queen's Podcast Lab at the City University of New York, to our producers, and to Lena Orsa for the music. Mm -hmm.